You're listening to Maximum Medicine Radio with host Doc Martin. Stay tuned in or call in. You won't want to miss what's happening next. How do you step into your maximum potential? How do you connect your spiritual drive with your physical path? Stick around as Doc Martin takes listeners on a journey through the seen and unseen, the accepted and the unbelievable. Get ready to meet the maximum you the world needs on Maximum Medicine Radio with Doc Martin now. Hi, everybody. This is Maximum Medicine. I'm Doc Martin. We're back. And my guest tonight is Stefan Schwartz, and you'll hear a lot about him. I'm going to introduce him to you in a minute. But what I wanted him here for is he is an expert on remote viewing, which he'll explain, and consciousness, at least what's known out there. So I have some questions because we all have questions about all of this. Stefan, thank you so much for being here tonight. My pleasure, Sharon. So I guys, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Stefan's bio and tell you about the parts that intrigued me, and there's a whole lot more. Um, he is a researcher, a scholar. He has worked with the Institute of Human Science, Saybrook University. The, um, he is an author on the journal Explore. He is a senior, is it pronounced Samueli? Samueli, yes. Samueli Fellow for Brain, Mind, and Healing, a research director at the Rhine Research Center, which I looked up a little. It's a, about paranormal and consciousness in Durham, North Carolina. And you guys might have heard when he was doing remote viewing with at least two renowned, we call them psychics, but maybe maybe we're being a little too general, um, for remote viewing for archaeology, specifically buildings in Egypt, remote viewing for sunken ships. He worked in the Navy when he was younger at the Naval, in Naval Institute or Department of Navy. No, I was the special assistant to the Chief of Naval Operations for Research and Analysis. Okay, more research. Good for you. He has studied parapsychology. And I want to tell you about the thing that intrigued me the most. If that wasn't enough to blow your mind, this to me was amazing. So, Stefan, I remember the story when I was looking at many of your videos that somehow a couple arrives in your remote farm in Tidewater, Virginia, and something occurs. We can go, we can probably debate that all night, what really happened. And you end up in Virginia Beach as a young man, at which time you spend five years working at the Casey Foundation, reading everything in the Casey Library. Do I have that story right? I, I read, sort of right. I read all of the Edgar Casey readings. There are about 15,000 of them. And in that time, you obviously got intrigued by how does this minimally educated Kentucky farm boy find answers and predict the future? That must have... Um, Captivated you? Well, the, the Casey material 
I I didn't know anything about consciousness research uh, when I got interested in this. Um, I had this unusual experience that got me down to Virginia Beach, and I began to read this stuff, and I wanted to know how uh, the first uh, reading I ever read when I was taken to the ARE for the first time, I walked into the library and uh, along one of the walls was a whole wall from floor to ceiling of these green loose leaf notebooks. And the woman who had brought me there said, well, those are the readings. I didn't know what a reading was, and she explained to me as what she understood. And I, at random, just pulled one of these green notebooks off the shelf and opened it up. And it was a reading given in 1936, that's important, uh, for a woman. And he said in the reading, uh, Casey said, she had been a member of the Essene community at Kerbet Qumran, not the name, but he described where it was, and I recognized it as Kerbet Qumran, and that she had been a member of the Essene community and a teacher of astrology. And I can tell you, Sharon, it is possible for your hair to stand on end. Because before I was drafted into the Army, I worked for National Geographic. And one of the last things I did before I left to go into the service was research on the Dead Sea Scrolls and I knew for an article I was doing. And I knew that in 1936, there was not a person alive on Earth who knew that the Dead Sea Scrolls existed. They had no idea where they were, even if they did exist. They were discovered by a young Bedouin tribes boy who was a shepherd who would chuck a, chucked a rock into a cave opening and heard a clunk and went down to see what the clunk was about and found these urns, which contained what we now call the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that was in 1947, 11 years after this reading was given. Cool. At the time the reading was given, 1936, first of all, the, uh, the general belief was that the Essene community was a schismatic order of Jewish monks. That was from Josephus, who was the authority, considered the authority on this. No one knew that women were involved at all, and certainly nobody knew that they had any interest in astrology. But in 47, 11 years later, when this, this young boy found these things, and they were then taken out and examined by scholars, they discovered uh, also they began an archaeological dig in what was thought at the time to be a minor outpost of the Emperor Vespasian. And it turned out this was the Essene community that uh, everybody had been talking about. They didn't know where it was. And when they did excavation, they discovered that they were female skeletons. So women had clearly been involved. And when they translated the Dead Sea Scrolls, they are obsessed with astrology. Mm -hmm. So the question that I had, and I asked this woman that had brought me to the ARE, how could this guy possibly know this information 11 years before it was discovered? And that's what started the whole thing because I wanted to know how it was possible you could know something 
that nobody else in the world knew, and you could know it years before it was discovered. That does make my hair stand on end. But the other part of this story that makes my hair stand on end is, have you reflected back? I'm sure, I'm sure you have. What have you made of this couple that arrives, having never known you before, and are instrumental in you leaving your rural family farm and landing at ARE, which begins your entire MO of ex, ex, um, experience and exposure. What do you have thoughts about that? I mean, oh, yes, of course. So, mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, I've done a great deal of research on this. Yes, just to clarify, to explain to people what happened. I uh, had been in New York. I came out of the service and um, I went to work for a newspaper and I wrote a script for Colonial Williamsburg. They, they made a movie out of it. They used to show it at the Information Center. I don't know if they still do. But in any case, I wrote this movie and I sent it up to a guy I had met in the Army. And uh, he invited me to come up and I was offered a job at, with a company called Screen Jams, which was then a big television production company. And I wrote a, a, a screen adaptation of a book by, by um, uh, oh God, it's gone out of my name. I'll think of it in a minute. Anyway, Bud Schulberg. And um, uh, I sent this uh, this script that I had written in Williamsburg and they liked it. And so they got me to do this adaptation of this Bud Schulberg play so many years ago. And I went to, uh, I, you know, I was in New York. I was a young man, I, 22. Uh, I was working as a screenwriter. I was making what in those days was quite a lot of money. And um, I thought I was on a successful path and everything was right. And I went to a party that Truman Capote gave, a, a, a very famous writer. And I went down the hall to go to the bathroom. And as I came back, there was a there was an antique Italian gilt mirror on the wall. And I looked in this mirror and said completely spontaneously without any thought about what I was about to say or anything, no plan. I just looked at myself for a long time in the mirror and I said, you are becoming an unattractive person. Your values are all screwed up. You need to do something different. But I had no idea what to do. I looked down the hall and there were all these famous people at this party and and I walked out and said goodbye and good night to them and and left and slept on the in, in on the sand in the beach and this was on Fire Island. Got in my went back to Manhattan, got in my car and drove down to Virginia. And it was the only time it, it is the only time in my life I've ever been depressed. Because I just did not know what I was saying, what I meant by what I had said, and I I didn't know what to do about it. I just was at a place where I didn't know what to do. And I was sitting on the porch at my family's farm in Tidewater, down in Gloucester County. And I looked up one day uh, as I was sitting there in this depression, I just didn't know what to do. And there was this couple walking in the gardens and 
This was a house that was built in 1653, and everyone who had ever owned it had been in my family. It had been a land grant to my mother's family. Um, it had loved it, and it had very extensive gardens. And I looked up, and here is this couple walking in the garden, and they're dressed like people in New York. He, he's wearing a, a gray double-breasted suit, and she's got this quite smart linen dress on. And, and I look over where the cars would park, and no car. So I thought, how in the world? I looked down at the, at the dock, uh, no boat. I thought, where in the, who are these people, and where in the world did they come from, and why are they here? And they saw me looking at them, and they came over and and uh, opened the door, and, and they came into the screen porch, and and this woman looked at me for a moment, and instead of introducing herself, she said to me, "Do you believe in reincarnation?" And I had never thought about it; I'd never given it any thought. And I thought about it for a minute there, and I said to her, "Well, I, you know, I don't know anything about it, but yes, I think I probably do. It's very symmetrical." And then I said to her, but, you know, wait a minute, you know, who are you and why are you here? And it, they introduced themselves as Ed and Paula Fitzgerald. And she, uh, she said, well, we're here because I had a dream uh, about you. And um, I, I wrote down how we should drive to get to you because I said, how do you know, how could you possibly get here? We're at the end of a 10-mile school bus road, and our lane was a mile long. So I, I said, how did you get here? And she said, well, I had this dream, and I'm supposed to introduce you to Edgar Casey. Do you know who Edgar Casey is? I said, no. I have no idea who Edgar Casey is, and I cannot understand how you could possibly have found this place and why you would do this. None of this makes any sense to me at all. And she explained that this dream and that she they were students of Edgar Casey's readings and and um, I looked at this guy and he looked vaguely familiar and I realized that I had met him once at a film conference and I said to him are you the Ed Fitzgerald who was the production designer on Magnificent Seven it was then a very popular movie and he said yes so that gave them a kind of gravitas they didn't seem quite as weird as I had originally thought and just then a car came down the lane and and um, with a young couple and she said give me your telephone number I gave her my card and and they got in the car and drove away and I was watching the car go down the lane and I thought what the hell just happened I mean what I, you know none of it made any sense and about a week or so later uh, I got this call inviting me down to uh, the ARE and I got in my car because, as I said, I didn't know what to do. I was very depressed, and I drove down to Virginia Beach, and I got to the address I had been given, and there was a guy up on a ladder putting up a sign for what turned out to be a leather shop, a sandal shop. <coughs> this was the, this is about 1964. And I said, I'm here to meet T.J. Davis. And he said, well, he's not here, but Joan is. And around the corner came this very attractive young woman about my age, had beautiful lavender eyes. And she said, I'm supposed to take you up to the ARE. And I said, what's the ARE? And she explained to me that it was the organization that 
that had had been created to to hold the casing material and so we got in my car and I drove up and then as I said I she took me into the library and I just pulled this green loose leaf notebook off and had this experience of this the Dead Sea Scrolls and and I thought well I've got to understand this stuff so I called back and and said well this is going to take a little longer than a weekend it took five years and I decided uh, that I had I had enough money saved up from when I'd been in New York that I didn't need to get a job I I, I could do what uh, I wanted to do at that point and that was read all these readings so I went to Gladys who was Casey's archivist and sec lifelong secretary and said I want to read all the readings she said well nobody's ever done that before I said I know but I want to read them in order uh, because I want to see how they develop as it goes along and she said well I'll help you and she did I met Hugh Lynn Casey Edgar Casey's son who was the director of the ARE and and I started this reading program and I did it for about two years two and a half years and then I thought I need to compare this with what science knows about this because this stuff was so bizarre he spoke languages he didn't speak he could describe what people were wearing who were thousands of miles away I mean I just didn't know what to do with any of it and so I started reading the parapsychological literature and I started with the same thing I always do I started with the very first journal ever published and I read them all and what I could see was uh, most of it was about proving that it existed and I by that time I didn't have any doubt that it was real because the Gladys Davis his secretary and archivist was a meticulous archivist and she had all this paperwork which supported the accuracy of, of you know Casey would give a reading for instance and he would say we have the body and oh it's quite a large body in a striped pajamas you know weird things like that and and that he then, shouldn't then, have known yeah and that how could he possibly know that the person was a thousand miles away or whatever and then there'd be a letter from the uh, the wife or the husband of the person saying oh yes uh, uh, she was not feeling well and she was in her striped pajamas and I'm sorry to say she's quite overweight so how could that possibly you know how could he possibly know that anyway in 1968 I began because Casey said other people could do this I've never met anybody that could do it quite as the way he did but in any case uh, I began to do experiments and so I became an experimentalist and I am an experimentalist and and so everything I know about consciousness I'm not a philosopher I'm not a theoretician I'm an experimentalist and everything that I know about this subject is based on objectively verifiable data so there's nothing speculative about it and I've been doing that ever since and I originally called it distant viewing um, and then later in, in 74 I think 75 somewhere in there Ingo Swan called it who was one of the viewers called it remote viewing that's the term that is stuck it's a terrible term by the way both of them because it has nothing to do with distance and it has nothing to do with viewing 
and it has it's nothing to do with remoteness but that's the term and um and so i my original experiment i i got a i created a grid in my back garden of this house i was living in and uh, originally had 12 squares in the grid and then it eventually had 144 because it made for stronger statistical outcomes and i would bury mason jars with things in them or little 35 millimeter film can canisters um, for people to remember that and I would put things in them and I would send a, a mimeograph that's how old this is a mimeograph of the grid out to people all over the world that I knew and I would say to them I have buried something in the grid would you pick the grid uh, within the grid which square um, I have selected and if you can do that, would you then describe for me uh, what is what I have buried in the grid? And they could do it exactly as Casey had said. Um, and so that's what really began the whole thing. I, I, I found that not everybody could do it all the time, but um, some people were quite good at doing that. And um, they could not only do the location, but they could describe, for instance, I, I, I was married at that point, and I, I took my uh, one of my wife's uh, perfume bottles. You know, those you used to have these little things that had squeezy uh, knobs on the a little bulb at the end, and it was a vaporizer for uh, perfume. And she had this thing, and I put it in a mason jar and buried it. And the person said, well, it's a bottle, and it's got this little squeezy thing at one end. And there's a very strong smell of flowers. And in fact, it was Madame Rocha, uh, Madame Rocha's uh, uh, perfume with a flower smell. So how could they possibly know that? And that's what got me started and what I've been doing ever since. Looking at what I have come to think of as non-local consciousness, an aspect of consciousness which is not physiologically based, and I became convinced. I, I met uh, Ian Stevenson uh, at the University of Virginia. That's where I had gone to university. And he was doing this reincarnation research and, and getting this extraordinary information. And I met um, a man named uh, George Richet, who wrote a book about what today we would call a near-death experience. And I, it was clear to me that there was what what today we would call continuity of consciousness. That is, the consciousness existed prior to your incarnation and it exists after your physical death. That there is an eternal self. That's what I call it. The religion calls it the soul. There is this aspect of you that existed before you were born and it will exist after you're physically dead. And that what comes across from one life to another is information. And so over the, I've been now doing this for 60 some years. Uh, what I now see is that this is an information phenomenon. It's not an energy phenomenon, which is the way most people talk about it. It's not about energy. It's about information. And the key to it is that what we call reality is a creation of intentioned consciousness, not only of humans, but of others. Max Planck, father of quantum mechanics, 
was interviewed by the Observer in 1931, and uh, he didn't give very many interviews. And the reporter who interviewed him from the Observer newspaper in England said, my editor asked me up here, sent me up here to ask you one question. And he said, what's the question? And the, and the journalist said, what have you learned? You and Einstein are the two most famous scientists in the world. What have you learned? And I don't know what they thought he was going to say. But what he said was, what I have learned is that uh, consciousness is causal and fundamental. Space-time, what we call reality, arises from consciousness, not consciousness from space-time, which is the materialist view. You cannot get behind consciousness. It is the fundamental. And I believe that is correct and it is confirmed by all of the consciousness research. One of the questions that I was interested in at the time, there was a huge debate going on and the general idea was that that uh, what was then called telepathy, an old-fashioned word, nobody, I don't use it anymore, um, that it was like a walkie-talkie phenomena. There was a sender and a receiver and a signal and that it was some kind of electromagnetic transmission. And so I carried out an experiment called the Deep Quest experiment. You can see the, I actually filmed it. I got Leonard Nimoy, Dr. Spock to do the, uh, be the narrator, the voiceover. And um, I demonstrated that using a submarine, put, putting people in a submarine and asking them to describe where other people were hiding or to, uh, before I did the submarine part, I had, I sent out a chart and I asked people to locate a previously unknown wreck on the sea floor. And I was able to establish that it is not an electromagnetic phenomena. There's no signal. There's no sender receiver, that whole model, which you hear people talk about. Uh, just isn't correct. What happens is you open to the non-local aspect of your consciousness and you can in and from that non-local domain, because it's an informational construct, you can get anything. And that's what remote viewing has showed, which was part of what freaks people out, particularly uh, wealthy or famous or or political leaders is they realize there are no secrets and it makes them very uncomfortable. But nonetheless, that's the truth of it. You can get information on anything. And does fact, this, does this, does consciousness have a form that we can talk about, a physical or in physics or quantum mechanics form? Does this, no, it, no. that's hard. Quant that's quantum hard mechanics, Quantum mechanics may be involved. Quantum entanglement may be part of how the non-local becomes local. We don't know that for sure, but a number of people are trying to explore that, and we'll find out. But th that is just a transition transition process. The, the, the thing that you have to get clear about, and it changes your whole view of the world, mm -hmm. is that... Um, 
All consciousness is interconnected and interdependent. We live in a matrix of consciousness, for starters. We don't have dominion over the earth, as the Abrahamic thinking was. Uh, Abrahamic thinking. We live in this matrix of consciousness in which all consciousness is interconnected and interdependent. And the linkage is not at the physical level, it's at this non-local domain level. And again, I don't know what consciousness is, nor does anybody else. But it what is we do hard. It is hard to wrap your brain around it. Yes. Yes, it is. Because it requires rethinking everything you think you know about reality when you understand that that people can hold conscious intention, for instance, and affect your well-being from a distance, or that they can go back from the future into the past and affect your well-being, as an example, or that you can, uh, I all of my research is what's called triple blind, that is, at the time that we do the research, no one knows the answer to the question. It only, if it's the archaeological excavation, reveals it, or if it's a, a predictive, precognitive, uh, it only the future will reveal whether that it's correct. But what we find out is that um, a it is possible when you open to non-local consciousness that you have access to essentially anything. If you look at religion, all religions across the whole of history, geology, geography, and culture, they all begin because one person has a non-local consciousness experience. Jesus gets baptized by John. He goes into the desert to meditate. The Buddha goes up to an ashram, and he's taught to meditate, and he awakens. Muhammad goes to the sacred cave of Hira, he has a non-local consciousness experience and begins to meditate and awakens. So that you'll notice that the key part of that whole business is that they meditate. And so if your viewers don't take anything else away from this interview, I will tell you that the way to do this is to develop the daily practice of meditation. It will give you the best gift you will ever get in your life because it will allow you to open to this non-local aspect of consciousness and it will transform your life in good ways. Mm -hmm. And the thing also that is hard when our entire, as you said, our reality is based on time space. And now all of a sudden you have to flip out of that to recognize that this concept is not time or space bound. That's correct. And it kind of blows, if you're a scientist, and truthfully, I, I find um, all of my, I was a physiologist um, before I became a medical student. And truthfully, it feels so, what's the word? Stodgy. It feels like it's missing so much. And then you blow my mind and take me out of space time, which kind of throws you out of the science and the way they describe, you know, Einstein and this and that, and this has to be this and reality has to be that. It, 
it kind of kind of sends you on a little mental rabbit hole. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. Well, uh, interesting thing is that that uh, Planck, Einstein, Pauli, Heisenberg, Schrodinger, all of these men that that uh, that are the really the people that created modern physics, all of them began as materialists. And they all ended up recognizing that consciousness was causal and fundamental, just as Planck did. They didn't start out that way. Their research, their experimental work got them to that. Mm -hmm. um, if you think about that, I mean, the reason that materialism has become the dominant view in Western culture, not in Eastern culture, but Western culture, is because of the Council of Trent. Between 1545 and 1563, the Roman Catholic Church held 25 meetings of the Curia and because science was just beginning and they were feeling threatened by it. And they were also feeling threatened by the Reformation movements that were beginning. And so they, at, at the end of this, after these 25 meetings that took place in, in Trento and Bologna, they, uh, they issued an edict and they said all everything that's about the physical world that's you guys in science everything that has to do with spirit read consciousness that's our world we control it we are in charge of what is we say about it if you get involved in our world and we can get our hands on you uh we'll uh, kill you torture you and kill you and they did and so from that, from 1563 onward, uh, although individuals cared about consciousness, uh, uh, people like Newton, but they... Uh, it put a big schism. It created an enormous schism until the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, when psychology, psychiatry, parapsychology, anthropology, sociology, uh, all began and they all began uh, recognizing that there was something going on with consciousness. And, and so that brings us up to today where slowly, but nonetheless, uh, it is happening. Consciousness is becoming a fundamental reality for science because materialist science simply cannot address a number of the issues that the research is showing. I mean, the, the, the book to read, if, you're in, if anybody's interested in this, is called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. It's by a man named Thomas Kuhn, who was the leading uh, scientific historian and philosopher of the 20th century. And he describes how paradigm, he coined the term paradigm, and he describes how paradigms change because they are inadequate. And that's where we are now. Consciousness is becoming a part of a foundational part of science today. It's still not the dominant view, but that's what's happening, particularly as younger scientists come on because they recognize that materialism as a model of science simply is not adequate. Yeah, and that's that stodgy feeling I get. Um, but I want to I want to shift over um, to talk about being agents of change 
and how in the literal world, we use terms like dreaming our world into being, but I, I wanted to offer, do you need a break? No. You need a short break. Okay. No, I'm fine. All right. Wonderful. So when we're, those of us are, who are trying to grapple with the information of the unseen world that we don't know how to explain the spiritual and metaphysical phenomena that happen. And a lot of times we're taught that um, the things that quote shamans and the indigenous spiritual people used to do was to be able to quote, dream the world into being. And now that we're talking consciousness, first I want to ask you, what, how can we explain that now with what you know? And then how can we, and I mentioned we as I'm in a meditation group, how can we be good agents of bringing in the future of shifting things? And that I want to talk about your book, The Eight Laws of Change, How to Be an Agent of Personal and Social Transformation. So I wondered if you wanted to comment on that at all. Yes. Well, um, uh, Sharon, four times in my life, I've been involved with changing history. And uh, in the 50s and 60s, I was just a young man, uh, you know, started as a teenager, involved in the civil rights movement because it seemed very unfair to me to treat people differently because of the skull color of their skin. I was more interested in the, the quality of their character. And I also thought it was very odd that women were treated as second-class citizens. It just seemed very strange to me because a number of the most interesting people I had known were women. So I began, I got involved with the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s. In the 70s, I became the special assistant to the chief of naval operations and was part of the small team that transformed the American military from the elitist conscription organization that I had been in as a part of the army into an all-volunteer meritocracy that was uh, gender neutral and racially neutral. And then in the 80s, I got interested um, because I thought we were going to have a nuclear war, I got interested in trying to create a better level of, of um, interaction between the Soviet Union and the United States, what came to be called citizen diplomacy. And throughout all of this, the consciousness movement, which I've been involved with. So I, starting about 30 years ago, I began looking at how do people create social transformation that fosters well-being because I got to a place, uh, particularly when I was with the Navy and was, uh, I was also part of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Secretary of Defense discussion group on innovation technology in the future. I came to believe that, the, again, based on data, not on politics or partisanship or any of that, based on the data, it was very clear, is very clear, that when you pick the option that is the most compassionate, life-affirming and fostering of well-being, 
that that's always, I can't find a contradictory, a, a contradictory example, that is always the optimal best choice. It's the most efficient, the most effective, the easiest implemented, the most productive, the nicest to live under, and the much, much, much cheaper than any other option. So I got interested in how do you create social change that fosters well-being? Because that's the thing that I am interested in. How do you foster well-being? Because that is always the best choice. And I could give you thousands of examples. But in any case, uh, so I started studying uh, the biographies, the 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 diaries, the notebooks, uh, accounts of major social changes. And and what I discovered was that there were eight laws. I didn't invent them. I discovered them by comparing all these social transformations that there there are eight laws that are key to creating change. And if you'd like, I'll list them. Yes, please. Okay, the first law, and these are not, by the way, what you would expect at all. You know, when I got into this about how do you create social change, I thought, oh, well, it's about raising money or having the best publicity or, you know, that, that, that kind of stuff. No, it's not about that at all. Uh, the first law is the individuals individually and the group collectively must share a common intention. And, you know, if you've ever belonged to a school group or a church group or a political group, trying to get everybody on the same page so that they share a common intention, not an easy thing to do, but you have to do that. The individuals and the group have to reach a common consensus. And you see that I learned that from the, the abolitionists uh, and from the women's suffragettes, particularly. And also from the Quakers. The Quakers are a very, very interesting group of people because there, very few people know them. There aren't very many. There's, there's I don't know, a, a couple hundred thousand in the United States. There's a few hundred thousand more all over the world. And yet, if you look at major social transformations, you find that again and again, the Quakers play a major role in making it happen. And, and that's because they, they have worked out these eight laws. The second law is the individuals in the group may have goals, but they may not have cherished outcomes. Again, I learned this from the abolitionists. Uh, I would read somebody's diary and they were in the early 1800s or 1900s. And uh, they would say, I loathe slavery. It's a horrible, evil thing. I don't know if it's going to end in my lifetime, but I'm going to work as long as I live to make it go away. So they have a cherished, they, they have a goal, get rid of slavery, but they don't have a plan of exactly how it's supposed to happen. So that's the second law. The third law, the individuals in the group must accept that they're Goals may not be reached in their lifetimes and be okay with that. And again, from the abolitionists and the suffragettes, you know, they would say things like, 
Women should be allowed to vote and should be considered equal to men. I don't know if that's going to happen in my lifetime, but I'm going to work for it. And uh, I'm okay with that, even if it doesn't happen in my lifetime. And the fourth law, the individuals in the group must accept that they may not get either credit or acknowledgement for what they have done and be authentically okay with that. And again, if you look at, uh, I learned this actually from a man uh, who had been a, had known Gandhi and had been one of his people. And um, nobody, I mean, in India, they would know his name, but nobody in the United States knows his name. A man named Ishwar Sharma. But in any case, he said, I did it because it was the right thing to do. And I, it was the right thing to do. So I knew I would never get any acknowledgement for it. But that's not the point. The point was, it was the right thing to do. That is to get India uh, independence. And Gandhi was able to do this without a war, which very few people talk about. But that's a huge deal. Think about that. He got independence. And in fact, let me say as long as I'm talking about him, they sent a reporter up to interview him from the Times of India just before he was assassinated. And the reporter said, my editor sent me up here to ask you a question. And, and he said, you know, it's kind of like Planck, what's the question? And he said, how did you get the British? How did you force the British to give up their most prized colonial possession? How did you force them to leave and give us independence? You don't have any money. You don't have any official position. How did you do that? And Gandhi's answer was, and this is critical to all of this social change we're talking about. He said, it's not what we did that mattered, although it mattered. It's not what we said that mattered, although it did matter. It is the nature of our beingness, who we are, our character that made the British choose. Notice the difference between force and choose. Choose to leave India and give us in, and give us independence without a war. So this all gets down to how individuals act and the choices they make. So now the, I said the fourth law, fifth law, each person in the group, regardless of gender, religion, race, or culture, must enjoy fundamental equality, even as the various roles in the hierarchy of the group and its effort are respected. Now, what that means is we're high order primates. We organize hierarchically. So that's okay. You, you organize hierarchically, but you have to recognize that everybody in the group has a fundamental equality, whether they're a man or a woman, whatever race, whatever religion, none of that matters. You have to, uh, everybody has to have a fundamental equality. And you see that in the American Constitution. Uh, and it was put there largely because of Benjamin Franklin, who came to recognize this. And uh, the sixth law is the individuals in the group must forswear, this is the hard part for me when I was younger, must forswear violence in word, act, or thought. Because when I was involved with civil rights movement, particularly, and I would go to these demonstrations and they would set the dogs on people, particularly on women. 
I just, uh, my initial reaction was to some other kind of violence. But you have to forswear violence. It's your beingness, not your violence, that causes change. The seventh law, the individuals in the group and the group itself must make their private selves consistent with their public postures. I learned this from Benjamin Franklin. He was sent over to France by the American uh, Congress uh, to get money from the, the most autocratic conservative uh, monarch in Europe to uh, pay for the American Revolution, which, by the way, the whole thing ran through Benjamin Franklin's personal bank account. Uh, but after he got there for a while and, and uh, uh, was working with uh, uh, Comte de Vergennes to get the, the French to, to help support the revolution, he got a letter from a woman who was a friend of his, and she said, uh, Dr. Franklin, I think your valet uh, is a spy, is, a, is, is a spying on you and, and uh, revealing what you're doing. And Franklin wrote back and he said, well, inasmuch as if he is a good valet, and he is, since I don't say anything in private that I would scruple to have made public, I don't care. And if you look at all of the political people and all, I mean, look at what's going on with Trump now, or you look at all these religious figures in the, in the evangelical movement who, you know, Falwell and others who say one thing, but then it turns out, you know, they're doing something very different personally in their private life. So you have to make your private self and your public self one and the same because you have to be authentically who you are. And the eighth law, the individuals in the group and the group collectively must always act from the beingness of life-affirming integrity. So if you want to be an agent of change that produces and fosters well-being, and this is the most important thing I'm going to tell you in this entire interview, Every day you make lots of little choices. You, the things that you buy in the store, the, the, the shampoo, the animal pet food, the toilet paper, the gas you buy, everything you do, the, all of those are votes. They are votes to support different kinds of companies. And you need to find out which companies are supporting and fostering well-being and which are not. There are some very specific companies that are the oligarchs of those companies are funding the destruction of American democracy, for instance. You don't do business with those companies. So you have to find out what it is you're doing and not be unconscious. And every day on all these little choices you make, you always choose the, the most, the choice that is the most compassionate, life-affirming and uh, uh, fostering of well-being. You tell 10 of your friends to do that and ask them to join you and tell 10 of their friends. And I can tell you that the people that are going to listen to this program and this interview, if they will do what I'm saying, it's called the quotidian choice. 
Every day you make these little choices. Before you make the choice, you find out what it is you're supporting with your money. When you buy these things and you choose only companies which support well-being and foster compassionate well-being, if you do that and you get 10 people and tell them you're doing it and they get 10 people, the people that are listening to this program can change the outcome of the election in 2024 and make it an election where people who are compassionate, life-affirming and fostering of well-being are elected. Now that may seem very bizarre, but that's how Martin Luther King was able to get the Civil Rights Act passed. That's how Gandhi got uh, uh, freedom or independence for the Indians. You don't think about it in those kind of simple, basic ways because you think, well, I don't have any, you know, who am I? I'm just an ordinary guy. I don't, I don't have any money particularly. I don't have any political power. I don't have any official position. It doesn't matter. When 10%, and we know this from research, when 10% of any cohort, whether it's a church group, a school group, a community group, uh, a city council, or a national congress, when 10% of the people change their perspective about something, change their consciousness, and choose to support and foster well-being, the, all the other people in the community or the group or whatever, they have to accommodate for that. So we have the ability, just the people that are listening to this program, you have the ability to change the course of the, 19, of the 2024 election to support and foster well-being if you make the quotidian choice every day and you get your friends and they get their friends and they get their friends. Just do the math. So first of all, I love that and thank you. And your book, uh, The Eight Laws of Change, I really enjoyed that as well. Well, thank you for making your time available for us tonight. It was really, really wonderful to hear the things you know and to learn from you. And thank you for being here. My pleasure. And we're going to close. I'm Doc Martin on Maximum Medicine. And Stefan Schwartz was here. And this will be archived and available if, um, and on the YouTube. And I'll send you a link. And have a good evening, Stefan. It was so nice for you to be here. You've been listening to Maximum Medicine Radio with Doc Martin. Tune in next time while the doc talks health, spirituality, and the impact your beliefs have on every part of who you are, body and soul. Doc Martin unpacks the challenges we face as human beings and teaches callers to open the door between the scientific and the mystical. To learn more about Doc Martin and Maximum Medicine, visit www.sharonmartinmd.com.